The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Hey everyone, and welcome to Sports Talk New York here on Long Island's WGBB. I'm Andy Sukov. I'll be your host tonight on this Sunday evening, August 8th, 2021. Crazy to think it's already August, and I, I know it's cliche to do that when when everybody says, oh, I can't believe it's filling the month. Yeah, that's how the days go, but this year felt like, really does felt feel like it went just really that quick. On the show tonight, I've got Ray Boom Boom Mancini. We're going to talk some boxing. We're going to talk his, he was producer on the movie 645, which is out in Regal Theaters now. But before we begin, I just want to remind everyone, you can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You can also visit our website at WGBBSportsTalk.com, where you can listen to all past shows and check out any upcoming show information. Lastly, if you don't already, we invite you to subscribe to the podcast WGBB Sports Talk New York on iTunes, Spotify, or just about really anywhere that you listen to your podcast. All right, now that, now that we got the uh, housekeeping out of the way, uh, before we welcome Ray Mancini on, I just want to take a minute. You know, it's it's August, and one of the one of the best things about August is that football is right around the corner. And who doesn't who doesn't love football, especially here in New York, where Jets fans and Giants fans have been craving good football for a long time now. We have been waiting. We have been patient. Well. Some of us have been patient, and now it seems like where both fan bases are getting to the point where their teams look like they're going to turn the corner to be the teams that we want them to be. Last night at MetLife Stadium, the New York Jets welcomed fans back to the stadium for the first time in almost two years for the green and white scrimmage. And look, it's just a scrimmage, and there's no re- there's no need to panic about what happens, because nobody's getting hit. So even if you see Zach Wilson get quote unquote sacked, it's, he's not getting hurt because they're they're wearing the red shirts, and you you just want to see that things are progressing well. And from what I was reading on Twitter from all from all the Jets reporters yesterday, it seemed like the defense was very solid. Intercepting passes, making life difficult for the quarterbacks. And, you know, prize rookie Zach Wilson didn't look his best. But again, it's a scrimmage. I'm not... And I, I know as a Jets fan, like that... Dry... I have that. I have that thought in in the back of my head, like, oh no, this is this is going to be one of the worst things ever, and it's just going to be another three years of misery and and horrible and horrible times while we wait to, while we wait for the next quarterback to show up. And but again, I you got you still got to be rational about it because it, again, you know, you're there's no contact, there's no. There's nothing. There's nothing to worry about. So while well, well, you'll have, well, you'll have people. Some people will panic. I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the line from my favorite Jeopardy host, Aaron Rodgers. Relax. Let him play. 
let him play a preseason game or two. Let him get into the regular season and not facing off against the Jets defensive line, which it, it should their line should be among the better lines in the NFL. And I, I'm ex- I'm very excited to see what that what they bring to the table. Yeah, I was I was out at I was out at Florham Park on Monday. And I was I was bouncing around between both fields just to kind of get a glimpse of everybody. And I I found myself watching the defensive linemen for a little while. And they are big. They're aggressive. I like I like what I see especially from Carl Lawson, Jonathan Franklin Myers. I'm very excited to see what they do against opposing offensive lines. And when I and I look at the offensive line of the New York Jets, I, I had actually never gotten to see Mackay Becton up close before, and now I, I get out there on Monday, and I'm standing I'm standing over on the side, and he just he walks by, and I I swear I thought I thought the sun just kind of got blocked behind the clouds. I look up, no, it's, it's just Mackay Becton's shadow. He is huge in person. I and I love that. Getting to watch him last year during the season was nice. Getting to see him up close and personal is a completely different ball game. And watching him against the other offensive linemen as they went they went at it in their drills, just really really a lot of fun. And just want just want to say as a, as a Jets fan, it's it's just it gives it gives you one of those warm fuzzy feelings. To know that this team, I think, finally and for the first time in a long time, is in good hands. So that that's where that's where I'm at with them. With the Giants, I look at I look at them, and I and I see, and I see that they're they've had a few guys retire in training camp. <laughs> you would think that would set off a, a couple of red flags. Like what? Like what's the coaching staff doing? What's going on out there? And then, then you read about all these guys, and Joe Judge comes out there and says they're doing it for X reason, Y reason, Z reason. We're not worried if they decide to come back; they have a spot. Where, like football, football's a rough game. We all know that, and it, it's crazy to me to think that at 30 years old, like I'm. And I'm hitting the prime of my life, and those guys are hitting the ends of their professional careers, and we're we're the same age. Like that, like that, like that doesn't compute to me, and I don't think it ever will. But I I know that like when when my mom said to me, "You're not playing football," I I I get why. And so that so that that was one of those things I'm. I would I would say I'm kind of glad that my mom didn't let me play football, but we'll we'll get back to that as I now welcome my guest for tonight's show, International Boxing Hall of Famer and movie producer Ray Boom Boom Mancini. Ray, thank you for taking the time tonight. No, thank you. I appreciate you having me. Well, we'll jump right into it, and you know when I hear the name Ray Mancini, my first question is going to be which which pizza place did you go to in Brooklyn? Did you go to Lenny's or did you go to Spumoni Gardens? But no, it, it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm listening. I'm listening. What pizza joint? I'm go ahead. I'm listening. Yeah. So I was to say, like, I, when I hear the name Mancini, my first, th- my first thought was be like, 
you, like you grew up in Brooklyn, and we're, we're, we're going to talk pizza for an hour. But no, Youngstown, Ohio, which as I was doing my research, a lot of athletes did come out, did come out of yes, Youngstown. Yes. Right. Well, it's funny. The reason I'm laughing is because when I was in New York, I looked when I'm first time pro, I moved to New York. And then through the years, you know, I beat with people, and especially after I won the title, things go, yo, 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 where you from in the, in the, in the neighborhood? What part? What, that? what part of Brooklyn are you from? And I said, yo, I speak these, those, and them, but compared to you guys, I speak the King's English. You know, baby guys, that sounds from Benson Hurst. That's, look, my mother was uh, born in Jersey. Raised in the city all her teen years. My, my, my cousins are in Bergen County, Jersey City, Bayonne, U, U, uh, Union City. But my uncle went out, my, uh, my mom's, my one uncle, my mom's brother, moved to Gra- Gravesend. So I used to go to Gravesend to visit him. And, uh, but, but, you know, I, you know, when I lived in this city, I'd visit, I'd go over, uh, there was, in 1991 and 92, I lived in the Brooklyn Heights. One, I was doing opera, I played in 91, and I did a film that we shot Red Hook. In 92. So I've spent time over there in, in the Heights, you know, on President Street and go down to Cobble Hill and all that good stuff. I love Brooklyn. Brooklyn is a great, you know, great, great borough. It's, 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 I, I love it. And, and I feel like I'm home when I'm there. And people, it's funny how many people think I'm born there. No. Born and raised here in Youngstown. And, and I don't know, man. Maybe, you know, people think because of the way I talk, but most of the people where I come from talk like me. So I don't know. It's, you know, but, uh, I'm always flattered when I think I'm from Brooklyn. That's the, that's the truth. Yeah. yeah. So like, you, your your father Lenny boxed for for a while, and I, I I'm I'm guessing he was one of your earliest influences getting into the ring. Of course, he was my only influence. My only influence to get in the ring, of course. Now, <laughs> my father turned pro in 1937. In 1939, he fought in Youngstown for two years, banging around in Youngstown, you know, northeastern Ohio. Couldn't get fights. He was undefeated. Nobody couldn't get fights. So. He was seen by a promoter, uh, uh, by a trainer who said to, uh, Ray Arcel, the great Ray Arcel, hey, if we send him to New York, would you be interested in helping him out? He said, I'll tell you what, you, you get to New York, I'll work with him. That following Monday, my father got on a bus, went to New York City, went to, uh, Stillman's gym, and that's for Ray Arcel. Ray happened to be away working with another fighter at the time. So they told my father where to set up and everything. And it just happened to be that Ray came back into town for something. Saw my father, hooked him up with, you know, one of the assistant trainers. And the bottom line is this. His first fight, his pro debut, was at the Broadway Arena on the corner of Broadway and Halsey, which I believe is at Bensonhurst. I think, I think that's Bensonhurst now, isn't it? I but believe so. That's yeah. where he had his first fight. And my father became, in his first fight from there on, he, he headlined at the Broadway Arena all the time, and it became a, such a fan favorite. And people thought, they used to announce him, in fact, that he was from Brownsville, Brooklyn. And he used to go to his manager, where the hell is Brownsville? You know, they say, yeah, yeah, just wave, just wave. <laughs> because they wanted that following. They wanted that Brooklyn following. And he got it. And I always wished I could have fought at a place like in, in New York, like the, the Broadway Arena. I wish it was around when I was fighting. But obviously it's the long gone. Or, you know, and, and uh, there's so many, uh, long, long Island City Garden, so much, you know, there's so many great players that he used to tell about, and my father used to tell me about, and then you read, when I read his record, you know, I know it's a lot clearer better than he knows it. You saw all the great places, uh, that he fought in, in New York and in Jersey. So, um, yeah, it would have been a great time to fight during that time, but he was a fan favorite, and I wish I'd have got a chance to fight in Brooklyn. Like now they got the new arena in Brooklyn now, and I, and I wish I would have been when I, when I was fighting. 
So I, as I was looking through, I, I saw he had the name Boom Boom first. Did he let you have it? Did you have right. to? Did you have to earn it from him? No, 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 no. The funds did it because this is what I was telling you. His first fight in New York, right? The the matchmaker was a guy named Max Joss. Max Joss turned to to a promoter. I'm, I'm sorry, was the, turned to a writer and said, "This guy does nothing but keep coming, throwing punches all the time. Boom, 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 all the time." The next day, Lenny Boom Boom Mancini. That's how he got the name from the, when, he, when he debuted at the Broadway Arena, and so. Obviously, he had the style, and that was reminiscent of the nickname. And uh, my whole life, I've had that. Since I was a baby, I was little Boom Boom Junior, Baby Boom, you know, all that good stuff. But I have an older sister, and I have an older brother, but it never stuck with them, obviously. It stuck with me. And uh, I was just fortunate. I would say, thank God I had the style that was reminiscent of the name, the nickname. Because, you know, if I would have been a tap-tap fighter, you know, a boxer, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been as, you know, wouldn't really fit, but the style fit. And so, yeah, I'm very proud of that nickname. I'm very proud of it. We're talking about Ray Mancini. You you went pro in seven in the late seventies, and you made a meteoric rise up the up the rankings. Yeah. Which goes in fighting for the WBC title in 1981 against Alexis Arguello at the age of 20. Like that, like that's not something you see every day, where a 20 year old kid is fighting for fighting for the for the title. Yeah, no, you know, the funny thing is, I watched Alexis through the years. I was a fan of Alexis Aguero. I, I remember reading, I used to read, read magazine all the time. I remember when he beat Ruben Alavarez at, uh, at Los Angeles at the LA Forum for the featherweight title. And then I, I saw on TV when he went to Puerto Rico and beat Escalera and stopped Escalera at the 13th round in Puerto Rico. And I was a fan of Alexis. And then he moved up, but when he fought Jim Watt and won the title, he, I just, you know, he didn't look real impressive, but I should, you know, Jim Watt, nobody's going to look good against Jim Watt. But I just felt I was on the climb. I thought I was catching him at the right time. I beat the number six contender in the world, and then I beat the number three contender in the world. The guy who just fought Lexus dropped the Lexus twice, you know, and, and by all accounts won the fight and called the gift to Lexus down in Miami. And, uh, that was Jose Luis Ramirez. So after I beat Ramirez, now, the funny thing is when I fought Ramirez, they didn't even take a bet. They wouldn't even take a bet in the, um, in Vegas, because he was such a big favorite. And then we thought he was going to walk through me and go have the rematch with Alexis. But, of course, I, you know, I beat him. And uh, not a lot of people thought it was too soon, only 20 fights. But I keep trying to tell people, I beat the number six contender. I beat the number three contender. Where are you supposed to go? You're going to go down? You want to, to beat the best, you want to fight the best. And Alexis was the best. And I really believe that was going to beat him. I really believe that God. But in retrospect, experience took over. If it's 12, look, close 12 rounds, I won the world title. I, I beat him after 12. But that's why the true championship difference is 15 rounds. And, you know, he, and his experience took over in the later rounds and he caught me. But then you, you got, you got yours a year later when the WBA title in, in 82 against Arturo Frias. What, what do you, what do you remember from that night? Because I, I have to imagine winning that first title, it, it's all a blur. Well, you know, I knew, when I got up today, I then had after I got beat by Alexis, I came back out of fight. You know, one thing I'm most proud of, I, I got beat on October 3rd. But, you know, a lot of guys, I, and it was a rough fight, and I had stitches, and you heal up, and you emotionally hurt and all that. But I got right back to it because, it's, it, you know, I got beat, but you got to get back to the grind, right? Right? You know, you can't you can't rest too long because it's a lot of, too many guys, they don't get back to it. Too many guys get beat, they wait for months, months, and sometimes it turns into years, and they never get going. I know, hey, it was one fight, 
I learned from it, got back, I came back and fought the day after Christmas, won the fight in January, at the end of January, and won, and that fight got me to fight with, with Frias. And going into the Frias fight, I knew Arturo was a strong guy, threw a lot of punches like myself, but I didn't think he was going to be as strong as me, and I was, and I just felt from my experience of fighting Alexis that I was, the, I was a better fighter, so I felt very confident going into that fight, you know, felt very confident. But, you know, obviously, you know, sometimes things happen you don't expect. And he caught me right early on with the left hook. Boom, knocked me against the ropes. And he stunned me. But because I was in great shape, I was able to regain myself quickly. And then it's a firefight. He stayed on, he jumped on me, kept throwing punches. And I tell people, when you're in a firefight, when you, when you get hit and you're hurt, you do one of two things. Either you fire back to break the other guy up and keep him off you, or you cover up. But I chose to fire back. And so it was a firefight for, you know, the first couple of minutes. And then I was able to regain myself a little bit and then catch him and drop him in the first round. And then he got up and soon he got up. I was like a shark smelling blood. I jumped on, pinned him in against ropes and I wasn't going to let him off until that referee jumped in or he went down. So I was very fortunate that uh, we were able to get that title. Like, would you say that is your favorite fight of your career? That, that first title win? Oh, of course. Winning the world title. What are you doing? You know, how could, how could anything top that? That's, that's the greatest achievement I ever had. We're talking about Ray Mancini. Uh, you know, a couple, few, several months later, and you know, many people know the story. Out in Caesar's Palace, you fight, you fight Dooku Kim, and you know, at, you take the aftermath out of it. It's really a, a, a phenomenal fight. Like that goes fourteen rounds, and you guys, you guys are going back and forth with each other for for, for fourteen rounds. Like, like that's not something you see every day. Well, I appreciate that, and you, you, what you said is absolutely correct. If if what happened didn't happen, it would be one of the fights you see on ESPN Classic all the time. It was it was a great fight, you know, and, and every, it was a great. Everything was great. The victory was great until what happened happened. He passed. Then there was nothing good about it. Obviously, there's nothing good about it. And but uh, you know, it's just it, it, you know, I, I'm I was honored to be in the ring with him. I um. People don't realize what a terrific fighter he was. And that night, he was so determined, you know. And um, it's just, you know, I guess for me, uh, the thing that bothered me the most is, you know, my, you know, we were both going in, both toe-to-toe battle. And, you know, my thoughts, but I guess what bothered me the most was why him and not me. Could have been me. And who's to say it couldn't be me next time? Because my style of fighting was not going to change. So that bothered me a long time. And, and, you know, you, you go through something like that. You know, I was at the highs of high, and then you kiss, you know, then you kiss pavement, and you know, it's such a drop, and uh, you know, and then emotional letdown, and then of course you, you got, you know, it was prime time, and then you got all people, you know, all, every newscast was carrying it, and um, on the news was all the news, and you had uh, you had politicians as well as um, religious pastors come out saying. You know, how can Ray Mancini, who says he's a Christian boy, go and be in a, a sport that's so unchristian like? And things like that. And I was like, wow, man, they were just chewing me up for a while. And it hurt. And you know, I, was 20, I was 21 years old. Come on. Yeah, I was a kid. And um, I guess, you know, it, it, all I could do is, you know, nothing prepares you for that. But because of my faith, my, my faith in, you know, in Christ, and, and because of my <clears throat> upbringing, you know, my, my great support of parents and great support of my friends and family, you get through it. You just get through it. But it took a while. It took a long time. And 
like I said, the only thing I got to was my, my faith. And, and, you know, you say a prayer, you say a prayer, and eventually, you know, you get asked for strength to get to it, and I was able to do that. And and then I decided to fight because, I you know, I didn't know whether, obviously I didn't know whether I was going to fight again or not. I think I was so, deep, you know, I went through that depression. But then I realized, man, I won the world title. I just finally achieved my lifelong dream. It was just my opportunity to get my, my, my financial security and, and, you know, take care of my family. And, you know, and then I um, talked to a very close friend of mine who was my te- former teacher and a very, very close friend of mine, Father Tim O'Neill, and he helped me through it. And he, helped, and he, and he said, look, I, you know, if you ask me, I think God wants to see you fight again. He gave you a gift. And then I want to see you fight again. And he says, and, you, you know, I think... You give people of young son, you know, we were at a, our highest unemployment. Economically, we were, in, you know, we, we were, it was terrible here. The city, like, kind of needed something to hold on to. I happened to be that guy, you know. And so he said, I think you'd be denying people your gift if you don't fight again, you know. But it's up to you. You have to soul search. And I thought, you know, something about what he said, and people were encouraging to me. And so, anyway, to make a story short, I decided to continue fighting. Um, but you always have to realize... Am I willing to go in there and be able to hit? If I catch a guy and hurt him, am I willing to jump on him and knock him out? You know, or will I back off? And I thought, no, I'm ready to go through it. Um, but let me just say this. I fought for the love of boxing. I love the sport. I love being a champion. I love being a champion for my city of Youngstown, representing them. But after that fight, there was no more love left. The, the, the love was gone. It became strictly a business for me. So that's the best way to explain it. So... Like after that, you, we saw we saw the changes in boxing after where they shortened they shortened title fights from fifteen to twelve rounds. Do you think that would have happened anyway, or like or like just like through the national progression of things, or would it would it have stayed at fifteen rounds? Well, first of all, the true chips in distance is fifteen rounds, not twelve. There's no statistical proof; it hasn't been that more accidents and fatalities happen in the last three rounds as opposed to the first twelve. In fact, statistics show there's been more, fatal, more fatalities and, and injuries to fighters since they changed in the 12 than before. So that's, that's absolutely, uh, it, it was a, I thought it was a knee-jerk reaction by the WBC, by who first changed 15 and 12, and then everyone else followed, they felt pressured. But the pressure didn't come from anybody but the networks. It was a network decision. People don't understand. It was a TV decision. As much, people don't realize TV controls the game. You want your film, you want your fights being telecast, great. If, t- if TV came back now and said, we want 15 round fights again, and we want the weigh-ins the morning of, not the night before, we'd be back to 15 rounds in the morning, the morning of. But for them, it makes sense, because now they got more extra time for commercial time, more time for advertising time, so, <laughs> TV is the one to pre- and I know that for a fact. A friend of mine in the networks, told me no, it was a TV decision, which isn't hard to figure out. So uh, I think when, the, when the, the, the organizations like WBC and then later on the IBF and WBA followed suit, it was just a knee-jerk reaction. They had, they had to follow suit with the WBC, who I thought caved in early on. So, um, but uh, I, no, the true championship distance is 15 rounds. Because if it wasn't for 15 rounds, the history of boxing would be changed. Would be changed. For instance, 1937, Joe Lewis is way behind Billy Kahn going into the 13th round. Billy Kahn slapping him out for 12 rounds. 
He knocks him out in the 13th round. Rocky Marciano's behind Joe Walcott going in the 13th round. He knocks him out in the 13th round. And Ray Leonard's way, way behind Tom Hearns going into the 14th round in that fight. If, if, if they aim for 15, Ray stops him at 14. Tom Hearns is the, the undefeated champion. And Ray Leonard's career and Tom's career have different uh, trajectories. They have different paths. So we all know the, the true, true championship distance is 15 rounds. But the fighters down, a lot of good fighters down, I don't blame them. I mean, but they, you know, when they talk about the guys down, they try to be an all-time great. Okay, I get it. Maybe top 30, 40. But when they talk about top 10, you cannot talk about these guys in the era of 12 rounds being all-time, I mean, in the top 10. You can't do it. Because people say, well, they could have won 15. How do we know? Because they never had to. You understand my point? They never mm-hmm. had to. So we don't know. And I said, again, if it's 12 rounds, I'm, I'm undefeated, according to that, because I've been in Wales. And I'm being Bramble going into the 14th round when I lost my title. See, so it makes no sense. It has, it has no validity to say, oh, these guys could have won 15 rounds. Well, it's easy to say when you don't have to. So um, I, I think, you know, people you know, seem to think, oh, 12 rounds was always the case. No, 15 rounds was, was, the, was the distance forever. And that's the true championship distance, irregardless. And that, as I said, there's been more fatalities and injuries since they went to 12, than all the, the 60 years before that. We're talking with Ray Mancini. We're going to switch gears here. We're going let, to let's talk, let's talk about 6:45 out in Regal, out in out in Regal <laughs> theaters now. I have seen it, and it was, but it was fantastic. Uh, highly, I highly recommend. Uh, it stars Augie Duke, Michael Reed, Armin Garrow, and Ray Mancini. So, uh, well, I, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. It's a small role, but thank yeah. you. It's very kind of you. <laughs> yeah. So, how did, how did you get involved in this project? Well, first of all, you know, I've been producing films. Uh, I've been, you know, since you know, I started my company. I went to California, got into acting in 1985, started my production company in 1987, knowing nothing about production. But I needed, I realized early on I had to create for myself. Because coming from the world, I come from, in the fight game, you control your own destiny. You win, you win, you lose, you lose. In this business, you control very little, other than what ends up on screen. But even that you don't control, because it's up to the editor, the director, and so on. So I would just, you know, realize that other people were controlling my destiny, you know, whether it was the, the director, producers, or casting directors, that I said, I got to try to get, I got to guarantee myself work. So I started my own company. And little by little, I was forced to, to make relationships with writers, some that have gone on to some renown. And they write things, and I pay them, and they appreciated that. And, and then, you know, eventually you just find, I, you, I know, I'd like to think I know what a good script is. And, and once you read it, you go, hey, man, I want to be involved with this. So it was kind of what was with 645. Craig Singer, the director, I, 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 we're involved in enough. I have, I hired him for another project that I'll be producing. And it got pushed back. So he said, Ray, can you help out with this one? Because this was kind of shovel ready, ready to go. And I said, uh, yeah, I think so. Maybe I, let me, so I had a guy who wanted to finance my, you know, come on as a financer for my other project. And I said, this, this movie's going to make money. This one's going to be, you'll do very well with this. So, you know, he said, okay, I trust you. And uh, that's how I was able to bring money to the project. And, you know, that's how you become a producer. You become a producer only a couple of ways. You know, bringing money to the to the to the table is one of them. So, you know, and the other great thing about when you become a producer, you guarantee yourself a role somewhere. You're gonna find something that you like, and you go, okay. And uh, 
So that was uh, how I came uh, to take with my son. My son Leonardo was an actor. So I got him involved in, we, we were the detectives, and uh, it was a lot of fun to do that. I'm very proud to be part of this film. It's a very, very good film, and I'm very proud to be part of it. Yeah, so you, you do play a detective in the movie, and you, you get to interrogate one one of the lead actors. Uh, wait, wait, when you're... When you're work when you're working a scene like that, like what kind of what kind of mindset do you do you get in to play to play that in, intense detective that is trying to that that you like you know you know what's happening here and you're you're trying to get the person to admit what the what he or she did. Well, first of all, you know, I mean, you know, people, I I, I, you know, I studied the method for years. And then all it shows that you, you know, follow your instincts, your instincts are correct. You know, I don't, I don't like, I don't, I'm not going to need therapy after each movie. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not going to have to go to therapy after it. It's just, you know, you kind of, I know guys, I know cops, I know detectives, friends of mine, and I know what kind of guys they are. So you just kind of, by talking to them, you get kind of information when, when, you know, what do they do when they interrogate somebody? And, you know, and then you play, most cops do that, that, that good guy, bad guy, what usually is what they do and usually works. You know, and um, so uh, me and my son played that, and I played the good guy, he played the bad guy, and and uh, you know, you just—it's easy to become a character like that. You know, and it's fun to put myself into that, into that situation. So um, I don't know. It's just like I said, I know people, friends of mine, who are cops, and I know how they are, and so I just try to think of them when I'm playing a role. Do you have, do you have anything else? Play this role. Play yeah. this role. Do, 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 you, do you have anything coming up that you can tell us about that's, that's going to be coming that's gonna be coming soon? Uh, well, uh, well um, no, not coming up soon. There, uh, we're people that shot a project, uh, one project I own, that we're hoping to do uh, this fall, starting in November, early November. So finished right before Thanksgiving. And it's actually by the same writer, Robert Klein, and I'm working with Craig, again, Craig Singer, and it's another psychological thriller. It's a different, but it's just as good, just as good. And, uh, you know, it's a different, uh, it's just, I like, um, I like those type of projects. I like psychological thrillers. You know, I'm not big on horror by no means, but I like psychological thrillers. I like to look into the minds of people and, uh, you know, people that you, you know, what sort of what people thinking, you know, what's behind the thought process of when a guy does what he does, you know, or, or a woman does what she does. And, um, it always intrigues me about the, uh, the, you know, the human condition. You know, I'm always intrigued by that. So, I got that coming up, and then there's a another project we have that it was a uh, it was a movie short that we shot, and now it looks like it, you know it looks like it's not financed. So, that one is a film noir that will be filmed in California, and I think it will be beginning or the middle of next year. So, let things happen, and you know, but again, we're creating. We got a couple things in pre-production for um, TV. So we're looking to go to one of the streamers with. Uh, it's a crime thrower. And I, I, you know, we got our hands on a few things, but I'm excited. I'm excited about the future. I'm excited about these future projects. Well, go go out to Regal Theaters. Go see 645. It, it's out now. Ray Mancini, thank you so much for taking the time tonight. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. All right. That was Ray Mancini, International Boxing Hall of Famer, movie producer, and as you said, he's got looks like he's got some fun stuff coming down the pike soon. We're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, I I wonder if I can I I wonder if I can play in the major leagues now. I hit I hit zero. I think I could do it. We'll be right back.
listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. This is WGBB. And we're back with the second half of Sports Talk New York here on WGBB 1240 AM and 95.9 FM. I'm Andy Sukoff. You can hit me up on Twitter at Andy underscore Sukoff. If you have any questions, thoughts, comments, concerns, criticisms, you want to tell me I'm crazy because I because I think I can play in the major leagues now, by all means. And yes, you're right. Obviously, I can't play in the major leagues. And when I was a kid, I I I that was just like just like every just like every boy does. When I grow up, I want to be a baseball player. Every every kid that ever played little league ever says that at least once or twice in their life. We all know that it's not going to happen. For 99.999% of us. And my dad, I, I, I love him, and I, I was always glad he was very honest with me. He said, he said to me many a time, my batting average was too low to be an MLB star. But you always had a smile on your face when you walked in from, when you walked back from the plate after you struck out. So. Since striking out isn't that big of a deal anymore in Major League Baseball, my batting average of zero, I think, might actually work now. In especially here in New York, I I think it might work. I would I would blend right in. Like I, like you, you look at the Mets right now, and my God, how they were in first place for as long as they were just shows how god awful the NL East has been this year. The just like just like with any, any any sports league baseball is a seri- is a season of peaks and valleys and you want you want you want to peak at the right time and hope the and when you do have those valleys that you're not in them for too long and right now the valley the Mets are in is got to be as deep as Mariana's trench because woof they got sh- they got shut out today they've lost six they've lost six of seven in division, they they had they had ten straight games against divisional opponents. They had four against the four against the Marlins, three against the Phillies, and they have three against the Washington Nationals coming up this week. That was a chance for them to go out there and put a stranglehold on the National League East division. And what did they do? The complete opposite of that. They lose three out of four to the Marlins. <coughs> They get swept by the Philadelphia Phillies. They're out of first place. They're only two games above 500 now, sitting at 56 and 54. So I believe I have to say they're 56 and 55. So they have like 50, they have like 50 games left to, to make their run. They haven't scored more than five runs in a game in three weeks, or just about three weeks. Their last time they scored more than five was July 21st when they scored seven. In the last two weeks, They've only scored five runs, I think, twice. And one of those, one of those was, a couple was a few days ago against the Marlins, which they won, and last Saturday against the Cincinnati Reds, 
which took them it took them extra innings to do that, mind you. So the those are those are games that these were ten games where the Mets could have established themselves as the premier team in a bad division. Like you'll you look at the NFC East last year during football season. What a horrendous division where you had a sub five hundred team make the playoffs in the Washington football team. The Mets could have been that team. I don't obviously yeah, in baseball you're not gonna see a team go seventy nine and eighty three and make the playoffs. That's just not happening. But when you had teams like the Nationals struggled, the Phillies can't get out of their own way, the Marlins are terrible, and the Braves were kind of stuck in neutral after Ronald Acuna went down with, with his knee injury. The Mets had a chance to put a stranglehold on the division, and they couldn't. And that, that should set off every alarm bell in the Mets front office that, okay, we didn't, we, we messed up here. They needed pitching. They got, they got Rich Hill. Rich Hill is 41 years old, and while he hasn't pitched awfully for the New York Mets, that that isn't Jose Barrios, that isn't Max Scherzer. Who, I mean, we'll face it, they weren't going to get Max Scherzer. The, the Nationals would never have traded him within the division, and the Mets didn't have the pieces to get him. They get Javi Baez, and Baez, for all intents and purposes, is a, is a great player, and he. He'll, he fills in nicely for Francisco Lindor at shortstop. He'll bounce, o- he'll bounce over to second base when Lindor gets back. So they have they have a very solid infield, especially if they re-sign Baez in the offseason. So they could have some strong pieces going forward. But right now, none of them are hitting. They're not scoring runs. And you, you would think that Jacob DeGrom is pitching every night because... And the Mets haven't given up a lot of runs either in this stretch. They're losing all these games two one, four three. Like you, like you score, like you only give up four runs a game. You should win more often than not. I'm not saying you're going to go 162 and 0, but you should win if you're giving up only four runs a game. So their pitching hasn't necessarily been the been the issue here. Yes, today the pitching was an issue because Taiwan Walker gave three home runs. But overall, it's been the offensive side of the ball that has been the thorn in their side, basically from minute one this season. And so maybe Chili Davis wasn't the problem. Like they fired him earlier in the season, and everybody rejoiced. Okay, the Mets, the Mets are gonna are gonna come around now, and they're gonna they're gonna be this great hitting team, and it just hasn't been there. Uh, I'm sure Chili Davis is sitting back now saying, see, it wasn't my fault. I mean, not, not that I want to think of him as a vindictive person, but I, I, I could definitely see former athletes being a little bit petty when when your job performance is being called into question, and then when you're when you're out of the picture, the team is still struggling. So... When when it comes down to it, the players still have to get the job done, and no, no amount of coaching is going to fix whatever is going on in between the years. It for a lot of people, it's mental. Like I, I I look at the other side of the the other side of town. I look at like what a role this Chapman was going through before the last couple of weeks, where he was pitching a lot better. 
couldn't get anybody out. He was walking the ballpark. And that, like, as a Yankee fan, that, that was very concerning. Because the Yankees were giving him positions where all he had to do was get three outs and they'd win. And th- those are games they needed because they had played so poorly in divisional games against the Tampa Bay Rays and the Boston Red Sox that they were sitting nine games out of first place. Nine games is a lot to come back from. And do I think they're going to do it? No, I don't. I, I honestly don't think that this year's team is a playoff team. Well, that's fine. It It's not optimal because this team did have high expectations to get to, to get to the playoffs and make a deep run to potential World Series because they they were finally healthy. They were get they were getting all these players back. Stan was primed to play a full season. Judge was primed to play a full season, which the they they had the pieces there and then just like the Mets, they don't hit. They get shut out by the Mariners today. And the Mariners have been bad for like 20 years. They haven't made the playoffs since 2001. They still may not make the playoffs this year because you do have very good teams out in the AL West. But what, what I found very interesting, I was as I was driving in here, they were talking about the game. And had the Yankees won today, it would have been the first time that the Yankees ever swept the Mariners in a four-game series in New York. Or, I'm sorry, just swept the Mariners in general in New York. It was a, it was only a three-game series, I'm sorry. I find that very hard to believe, that in the 45-year history of the Seattle Mariners, that they, that they never once got swept at Yankee Stadium. Like, especially, like, in the late 90s, when the Yankees were world beaters, uh, yes, the Mariners were also very good at that time, too, but you would have thought that the Yankees would have swept them in the Bronx once, twice, or then even when the Mariners were terrible in, in the 2000s and the Yankees were still at the top of the division, you would have thought it would have happened. So I, I was very surprised to hear that that had never happened before. I, think, I, I, guess, I guess it's true when they say you, you learn something every day. Well, right now, the Yankees are in a, so- in a softer part of their schedule. They played the Orioles this week. They played Seattle. The- these were games that they had to win, and they are winning those games. But they're still not necessarily making any ground in the division. It's it- it's v- it's very concerning at- if you're a Yankee fan. It's like, okay, we're-, we're winning these games, but, okay, we can't. The Red Sox and the Rays also continue to win. So right now the Yankees are sitting at 61 and 50. They're six and a half games back of the Rays for first place in the division. They're only two and a half games back behind the Red Sox, though. So they're they're making they're, they are making up some ground. So maybe they can get two second place, and then you want you want to a wild card. That's definitely on the table. I, I when the trade deadline came around uh, a week and a half ago. I had said the Yankees should have been sellers. Get rid of everybody you can. Like, trade Voight. Trade uh, trade anybody that you think you can get assets for that will help you long term. Like, this, this is a team that can't get out of its own way. They don't hit with runners in scoring position. That if they're not hitting home runs, they are they are a stagnant offense. They 
they decided to go the other direction, which, again, you know, your general manager Brian Cashman, like that's your prerogative. You want you want to bring you want to bring that team to where you think it should be, and I I respect that. You bring in Joey Gallo, you bring in Anthony Rizzo, which is I I have been screaming from the rooftops for a long time. Yeah, a good Yankee team should not be too right-handed heavy, which they have been for the last five six years. You you bring in Joey Gallo and Rizzo, who are both left-handed hitters, that's perfect. That's exactly what Brian Cashman should have been doing in the offseason, bringing in left-handed hitters. You look at every Yankee team that won championships, what's right in the middle of that lineup? Left-handed hitters who can put the ball in the seats, who can put the ball in the right center field gap, and make things happen. You have a 314-foot short porch in right field. Why wouldn't you want... I'm not saying you need to have eight left-handed hitters in the lineup, but you should have at least three or four. Like, you look at you look at the teams of the 90s. Bernie Williams is a switch hitter. Most pitches are right-handed, so he's going he's gonna to hit left-handed. Paul O'Neill, left-handed hitter. Tino Martinez, left-handed hitter. You look at... You look at the 2009 World Series team. Hideki Matsui, World Series MVP, left-handed hitter. Teixeira, a switch hitter. Again, because most pitchers are right-handed, he bats from the left side more often than not. Those are those are the guys you want to be on your roster when you're the New York Yankees. You, you look at the, la- the last big run they made in 2017 and even 2019. Who's right in the heart of the lineup that was really a catalyst for a lot of those playoff runs was Didi Gregorius, a left-handed hitter. And look, Didi Gregorius is not Tino Martinez. He's not Hideki Matsu. He's not even Jason Giambi. But he was the, especially in that game against Minnesota in the, in the wild card game in 2017, he was the spark plug. If I hit him that three-run homer, that really got everybody going. Especially after Severino had given up that, had that terrible first inning. Like that, like that was, like, when I, when I think of the New York Yankees, I think of a left-handed hitter doing big things. And that, and that today is how the Yankees should still be constructed. Today, it didn't matter. I, I could have been out there with my zero batting average. I could have been playing left field. It, it wouldn't have mattered. They left 11 men on base today. 11. I'm not saying you had to score all of them. Just score four of them. Because your pitching was good today. Luis Heal, pitching in his second big league game, had a strong outing. Didn't give up any runs. Had, had good command of his pitches. His, his fastball is nasty. I, I was very impressed with, with that. Got good movement on his off-speed stuff. Goes out there and does exactly what you want. But then, the offense doesn't do their job, and that—that's just disappointing. Like I, I was—I was watching the game, and at one point, Joey Gallo goes up there and bunts for a base hit. I—I I didn't realize people still did that. He—he he bunts against the shift. There's nobody there. You get—you get an easy single. I—I, I, my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe that. I would—I would. I would not, not that I don't, not that I want to see him do that every at bat, because you didn't just, you didn't just trade for him to drop bunt singles every time he gets steps up to the plate. 
but you know, like if he wants to do that like once a week, twice a week, keep keep the team on their toes, and maybe maybe you swing swing the third baseman back over to the left side of the field, so that way you have to keep an eye on that. And oh, look, now something's opened up on the right side. Maybe maybe that's something to think about. I, I know people have said that for now that the shift has become prevalent in today's game, where, oh, p- team sh- players should do that. It's not going to happen every day. Because eventually then, what, once too many people do it, everyone's going to say, oh, you sh- that's like an, probably like an unwritten rule somewhere. Like, you, you lose me there. But it, it's, just, it's one of those things, like, you see it once in a while, okay, I'm, I'm here for that. I fully endorse it. And I, I would like to. I wouldn't mind seeing Joey Gallo do that once in a while, in addition to hitting home runs into the upper deck of Yankee Stadium. I I would be here for that. But then, yeah, as like he does that, and oh, he had one of the six hits today. Like six hits against Mariner pitching is kind of pathetic. Not 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 to knock Yusei Kikuchi, and not to knock Paul Seawald, and you know I look you're. He's an ML- they're both MLB pitchers, and they're pitchers in Major League Baseball for a reason. But Paul Seawald was a very mediocre Met just just as recently as a couple of years ago. And he, all of a sudden he goes to the Mariners and he's unhittable? They, they, something's not adding up there. And I, Well, I'm, I'm not going to complain personally because I have him on one of my fantasy, fo- fantasy baseball teams, and he's going to help me get a, hopefully get a win this week. Like He's not a pitcher that the Yankees should be that confounded by. Like, like, that, like, that's a guy that they should be getting quality at-bats off of and not not swinging through uh, cement mixer sliders like we, like we saw DJ LeMahieu do. Like, like, that, like, that pitch he struck out on in the eighth inning, that should have, that, he should have hit that pitch. I will, I'll, that hill, I will die on. And in addition to that, just like the, just mental mistakes in the field. We, we, I, we, like we've seen the base running mistakes all year long, and that's frustrating. But the fielding mistakes usually, usually it's pretty sound fielding. Today, I don't know what happened on that play where Luke Voigt makes a nice play at first base, goes goes to get the force at second, and there's nobody there. Rudnett Odor, Glaber Torch is looking at each other like you were like pointing at each other, like you should like that Spider-Man meme. Like just pointing at each other. No, like fun, fundamental baseball would dictate to me, as I see it, and someone who did play first base for a little while. If the ball is hit to the right side, shortstop should cover, should cover second base on a force play. If the ball is hit to the left side, the second baseman covers. So that's why you see, when you see double plays. The ball is hit to the third baseman. It's always a five-four-three double play. You see it hit to the second baseman or the first baseman, it's 3-6-3 three, three on your scorecards. You, know, you generally don't see 3-4-3 three, three or 5-6-3 because it, it just makes sense for the third baseman to throw it to the second baseman because he would be coming across, same as the shortstop getting the ball from the first baseman. That that would that would be what my common sense would say to me. Apparently, Torres and Rudin Odor lost their common sense. And the ball wound up in left field. 
where I would have been waiting with my zero batting average. Like, like that's, like I, like I hate. I, I I just look at it, like how like how does that happen? That sh- that shouldn't happen. Not like, like okay, you want to say it happens in the little league? All right, fine. That should never happen in the major leagues. Like you've been playing baseball your whole lives, and for a guy, for guys who, especially infielders, like all right, like an outfielder, outfielder, it's get like catch ball, get ball in, hit the cutoff man. If you if you have an arm like Bo Jackson, just miss the cutoff man completely and just throw just throw out Howard Rollins at the plate. But if you're an infielder, that should be like that, like that shouldn't even you shouldn't have to think about that. That should be, that should be instinctive. Okay, ball, balls in Luke Voigt's glove. If I'm labored, okay, I'm I'm over at second base waiting for that throw, not staring at Rudenetto Door wondering why he isn't at second base as the ball is trickling past me. And th- those are the mental mistakes that frustrate coaches, that frustrate front offices, frustrates fans, and means that you don't you don't pick up games in the division. You now have to face the Chicago White Sox and the Boston Red Sox coming up. The White Sox are a first place team. Right? That that's no walk in the park. And these are not the White Sox of three years ago that were horrible and couldn't get out of their own way. This is a legitimately good baseball team that can whoop you and very well might. Especially now with Eloy Jimenez back from his from his injury. That is a huge boost to that White Sox lineup and something that should concern the Yankees going into this series. They have to play the Red Sox. They have struggled against the Red Sox all season long. They are sitting at 3-10 and against them. Those are games that you could you can look back on and say, why did the Yankees not win the division? Because they, because they couldn't win against Boston. They have six more games against the Sox this season. You want you want to make you want to make noise, go six and zero. That's it. When you're when you're playing you're when you're playing in your division, you better win. And that's at the, at this point for the Yankees, that's non-negotiable. Like you you made the trades for Joey Gallo and Anthony Rizzo because you think this team can win. All right, that's fine. Yankee fan, Yankees fans are behind that. Now go out there and prove it. That's all. That's all we want. That's all you. That's all they want. We they they want to win, just like we want to see them win. Because, look, losing sucks. No, nobody likes to lose. Like, and take it from me as a New York Jets fan. I've I've watched a lot of losing over the last five years with that team. I'm sick of it. I don't want to. I don't want to see. I don't want to see a baseball team right before. Be the New York Jets. I want. I want to see the New York Yankees be the Yankees. I know they can be, and that they know they can be. I. I it's not easy. Baseball is a baseball is a hard game, and I, I. I take it from a league of their own. It's the hard that makes it great. If it wasn't hard, everybody would do it. I. I'd, I'd be sitting. I'd be sitting in. I'd be sitting in left field, instead of the left field bleachers, which. Between you, me, and the sports talk wall, I'm totally fine with the left field bleachers. Like, so somebody hits a 107 mile an hour line drive at me, I'm probably gonna 
like cower away and ball's going to roll to the wall and I'm not going to know what to do with it. Other than, you know, eventually get to the wall and three hop, three hop the shortstop. But, you know, it, 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 it makes me glad that my dad did say to me, you ain't going to be a major league baseball star. You'll, you'll just have to, you'll just have to talk about him. Well, dad, you were definitely right. And absolutely agree. That's gonna just about do it for me here. I want to thank Ray Mancini. Of course, I want to thank my man Brian Graves behind the glass putting us on. And I want to thank you guys for listening. Make sure you stick around for hour two of Sports Talk, of WGBB Sports Talk New York. I'm Andy Sukov, and I want you all to have a good night. in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.